All right. Well, good morning, ladies. Thank you for being here. It's uh, hard to believe that this is our last EQ of the semester. Feels like we just started. And uh, thank you for just being here, participating. Let's open with a word of prayer. Um, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for the gift of grace that you have lavished upon us, your great love in Christ. Thank you that as we draw near to Christmas, we can have our hearts and our minds set on the precious reality of who Christ is and what he has accomplished. And yes, God was born in the flesh, born in a manger, helpless babe, and yet fully God. And yet he came for a purpose and he followed your will perfectly, laid his life down offered himself as an acceptable sacrifice, and through his great sacrifice, we now have mercy and rec have been reconciled to you, have fellowship with you, and can actually live our lives for your glory. What a, what a privilege that the lives that you have given to us on this earth bear weight into eternity as you have rewards for us and your work through us, and you have glory to be seen uh, through through us. These, these things are just too much for us to fully even comprehend, and yet we will worship you for them for all eternity. And so this morning we also give praise and thanks. I pray that this morning would be fruitful in our hearts as many distractions abound and obligations exist. Lord, I pray that we would love you, we would fear you, uh, we would seek to please you and honor you and glorify you with our lives. We pray that your word would work in our hearts this morning unto that end, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, once again, good morning. Welcome. Uh, did everybody grab an outline on their way in from the table? Excellent. Okay, we're going to be jumping right into our outline this morning, starting with the introduction, and we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time on that introduction portion. You can open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 66. And we're going to let Isaiah and his words and really God's words from Isaiah uh, set the foundation and the stage for what we're going to be talking about the rest of this morning. We started this semester looking at what it means to cultivate a love for God. How, how, do, we, how do we direct our heart to love God? That's what he calls us to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And we're going to kind of bookend our semester with how do we cultivate a love for God expressed in treasuring our time with him, right? The, the Christian life is full of disciplines. We talk about this frequently in EQ. Discipline, primarily one, two, and three, heart, home, ministry. The Christian's call to shepherd their own heart with God's word, to lead your heart as it should go. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the wellspring of life. God calls us not to be led by our heart, but actually to lead our heart, to direct it towards the Lord, to love God with your whole heart. That's, that's the call for the Christian life. And there's different disciplines and practices that the Christian is called to employ in leading and directing their heart. And this leading of our heart towards the Lord should overflow into our homes to faithfulness in the immediate context that the Lord has given us, that we would be faithful, whether that's as a, a wife or roommate or whatever your situation may be, 
to be faithful in your home. And then that is likewise to spill over into the rest of your life, into your ministry. We, we all are ministers unto the Lord. N- not maybe in the formal sense that we typically use that term, uh, minister or a pastor of a church, but we all are before the Lord, giving a ministry unto his glory. And particularly within the local church, he calls us to be part of a body connected with other Christians. And so each one of us is vitally important in an interdependent relationship with one another in the local church, using what the Lord has given us to serve and build up one another. These are all practices. These are disciplines of the Christian life. But there's a foundational reality that must be true under all of these things for the Christian. And that's that our lives are not simply going through the motions of Christian practice and discipline, but that our hearts are captivated by our God. That it's worship to him. That, that it's an expression of love for him. And so how do we get there? E- even in something like our quiet time, how do we shepherd our heart to treasure the time that we have with the Lord in his word? How do we direct our heart to love that, to prioritize that? And what do we do? What do we tell ourselves? How do we direct our hearts when we're not being faithful to that or we're being faithful to bring our hearts to God's word, but we just don't feel good about it? How do we direct our hearts? And that's what I want to look at this morning with you all. So look at Isaiah 66. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. But just to set the context a little bit for us, Isaiah is writing to Judah. Uh, We remember the split of Israel, right, after King Solomon in 931 B.C. And you had the northern tribes of Israel and then the southern tribes, which consisted of what two tribes? Judah and Benjamin, exactly that was referred to as Judah. So the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were then referred to as Judah. And Isaiah has watched the northern tribes' rebellion against Yahweh, and over the course of his life, he actually watches them be taken over, succumb to the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. So Isaiah has watched God's judgment on rebellious Israel transpire through the Assyrian captivity. And the message he receives from God is both one of impending judgment for Judah's disbelief, for their disobedience, but is also a message of God's promise of his faithfulness, God's faithfulness to his promises, and that what Israel could not do on their own, God will bring to pass through the work of a coming Messiah. We see that throughout the book of Isaiah. And when we come to our passage in chapter 66, God is actually speaking to his people about their worship of him. This is what I think about your worship of me. In verse 3 of chapter 66, Isaiah speaks of sacrifices, and we're seeing God address his people on their worship of him, and it's actually a rebuke for their hypocrisy. So the context of Isaiah 66 is a rebuke of the people of God, namely Judah at this point, in regards to their hypocrisy of their so-called worship of God. Yet in the first two verses in chapter 66, Isaiah is going to put forth from the word of the Lord, so God is actually putting forth what pleases God. So the context of Isaiah 66 is a rebuke over Israel or Judah's rebellion, but verses 1 and 2 is God spelling out, 
you have false worship. You have worship that is actually an offense to me, but this is worship that is acceptable. This is what garners his attention in a positive sense. And so look, look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Isaiah 66, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, or, or Yahweh. As we remember when we see those capital L-O-R-D that's the translators using that in place of what was Yahweh in the original, God's personal name. And then the second half of verse 2, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. In these two verses, God in, in this passage puts forth his greatness and then he describes what catches his gaze. So he puts forth, this is who I am, and we see in a wonderful, captivating, succinct manner, God's greatness put on display. And then, in light of all of his majesty, all of his power, all of his greatness, this is the one to whom I will look. This is what catches my attention. And so this is crucial for us to consider when thinking about cultivating a love for God and a passion and a commitment to Yahweh as our God, what do we actually believe about him and how does it impact how we live? Because listen, what you actually believe about God will have the biggest bearing on your life. Who you are in practice is dictated by who you are at the heart level, what you actually believe to be true. We can say whatever we want. But what will demonstrate who we truly are, what we truly believe, is our actions. It's what's going to flow out of us that demonstrates what we actually believe. We'll talk about this a little bit more in just a little bit, but A.W. Tozer has a, a wonderful quote that is spot on. I'm sure you've heard it before. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing, thing about us. Nothing else will have a greater bearing on your life than what you think and believe about God. And in verse 1, in the first half of verse 2, as I said just a moment ago, we see a succinct explanation regarding God's greatness that should really just take our breath away. I mean, it's so, so captivating, so compelling. God is great like Nothing else is great. He is distinctly supreme in every way. And he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God's glorious person fills infinity. He is the omnipresent one, yet he cannot be contained by anything. He's everywhere at once and yet cannot be confined. The heavens are his throne. The heaven is his throne and the earth, that which we are simply a speck on, is his footstool. He uses this metaphor to describe his greatness. God spoke, and as we've said several times, what did not exist yet obeyed him, came into being. He simply, by a word, brought into existence all things. He made all these things by the power of his word, verse 2. 
by his hand all these things came into being. And in verse 1, God contrasts his greatness in contrast to us. Where then is the house you could build for me? We're nothing in contrast to God. Not only are we nothing, but everything he has created is for his glory and for his use. And so whatever we are to make of our existence, it's actually to be centered around his purposes. God does not exist for us. We were created by him for him. And this is right. This is not a demeaning statement about us. This isn't false humility. Oh, poor me. I just need to speak down to myself falsely to try to conjure up some sort of emotional submission to him. This is just the fact of God's creative order. He made us in his image. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. But our lives are to reflect his image. <laughs> That's our purpose, to glorify him, to honor him as we live as he calls us to. What we cannot measure, what is beyond calculation for us, the universe, we have no idea how vast it truly is, that's his throne. That's how amazing, awesome God is. The Lord here in Isaiah is saying, I'm not impressed by a building. I don't need a building. My home will not be in a building. God gave instruction for his people. They were to follow, but not because he needed something from his people. The temple was a blessing for the people, not a necessity for God as if he needed a temple. He needed some place to dwell. The temple was a blessing to Israel, but they had built up pride in their heart over the temple as if they had done God some sort of favor. And like all of us are prone to do, they were worshiping their own accomplishments as opposed to simply walking in obedience and trust of the Lord. So God is infinite. We're not. The Lord here in Isaiah is putting forth these realities to humble his people. All of heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. He's the sovereign, sovereign one. He's the powerful, powerful one. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. His greatness goes beyond what we could possibly fathom. If you think about what he has purchased for us in our salvation, eternity with him, and you think about decades, centuries, millennia, and on and on and on, and we will never exhaust or grow tired of worshiping him for his greatness. There will never be a time when we're at a loss of what to give praise and thanks and worship to God for throughout all eternity. That's how majestic he is. And yet, in all of this, in all of his greatness, there's something that actually catches his attention. He knows all things, he's all-powerful, and yet something captures his gaze. Look at the second half of verse 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. This is so contrary to what catches our attention. This is the one to whom I will look. The one who's dynamic, charismatic in personality, compelling, good, good at making arguments, funny. That's, that's the one that I like to look at. Great arguments. They're not boring, not monotone. 
great personality. No, God, the humble and contrite one who actually fears God, trembles at his word. In this, we must understand God's gaze. That is what God is looking for, what catches God's attention, what's acceptable to God. This is so helpful because sometimes we look at God's means as the end, right? If I'm going to church, I'm going to fellowship group, I'm participating in EQ, I read my Bible every day, I think I'm doing pretty good. Okay, well, all of those things are simply the means. What's the end? This. (laughs) Humility. Contriteness of spirit. Trembling before the Lord. All centered and coexisting perfectly with what God calls us to. A love for him. A love for him. He calls us to faith, and that faith has an expression. He's made all things. He's looking for one thing. We can actually be useful or attractive to God, not to build a place for him, but we can be useful when we focus our heart where he calls us to direct it. These virtues, humility, contriteness of spirit, trembling at his words. And these things are connected to one another. They're related. They're a package deal. You have such a disposition at the spirit level, the very core of you, that when you hear his truth, everything fades into the background. What he has spoken is what matters, what he thinks, what he commands, who he is. That's what matters. Again, that's, that's different than our natural impulses in our flesh, right? H- have you ever read something in scripture or maybe somebody Usually it's somebody shares something with you from scripture. Did you know God actually says this? And maybe the impulse of your heart is, I could just never believe in a God who fills in the blank. That, that comes out of us naturally. That's truth suppression. That's what Paul talks about. Suppressing truth and unrighteousness. That's touching on things that I don't want to have touched, and I reject it. As opposed to one who simply sees God's word and goes, I yield. <laughs> I, this is God's truth. This is God's word, and I must submit. That's what God calls us to. So just a brief, brief definition of these three virtues that he puts forth that catches God's attention. What is humility? Simply a, a condition of lowliness or, or affliction of the soul in which one experiences a loss of power and prestige. A condition of lowliness or affliction in which one experiences a loss of power and prestige. It's really, ultimately, viewing yourself rightly before God. I've heard humility described as thinking less about yourself. As if thinking lowly of yourself, well, I'm horrible this way, I'm horrible this way, I'm horrible this way. Oh good, now I'm humble. Uh, and and then I've heard in in contrast to that, it's actually not perpetually thinking less about yourself it's thinking about yourself less it's just recognizing in your own heart uh, a lack of captivation with your own personal significance i just am not the most important person here right now i want to serve others i'm called to love others i'm called to consider others needs above my own that's the standard of holiness or of humility rather that Paul puts forth in Philippians chapter 2 when he talks about looking to Christ, consider others' needs above your, your own. Look at how Christ did this. He humbled himself, taking on flesh. 
And so true humility is not just focusing on how bad you are, but rather fixing your eyes off of yourself, thinking less about yourself, and being consumed and concerned with, with others, and namely here, God. God. Contriteness of spirit. Contrite, what does that mean? Th- this is a feeling or, or showing of sorrow or, or remorse over sin. There's a brokenness over your own sin in your heart. This is a compliment, a companion of humility. If you're prideful, you're going to have a hard time being contrite of spirit, being truly broken over your sin, brought to genuine sorrow. This one's slowed down by the reality of their own sin before a holy God. And to be contrite of spirit is not one who walks around just self-loathing, but is fixated on Christ. One who's fixed their eyes on Christ. There's a, a sobering of your spirit as you are broken by your sin. You recognize your need for a Savior. You recognize God's provisions in Christ. And your heart is led to worship by this. It's someone who is decreasing in their own heart as Christ is increasing. And then one who trembles at God's word. His words are our life. We revere his words above all else. God's word is all we have. It's an anchor that is unchanging. John 15, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my word abides in you, God's word needs to take root in us, to be embraced by us, practiced by us. Julie and I were spending time with dear friends this last week, and it just seems the the unity and sweetness of every conversation and i made a comment it's just such it's so refreshing it's just like if it's in god's word you're like this is how it is <laughs> yeah that's that's the way i go it is such an encouragement to watch that played out in someone's life so faithfully where it's just i'm not going to argue with the lord if it's clear in his word of course that's the way i want my life to go what a blessing that is so This is what captures God's attention. Now, how do we get there? How do we get there in our intentional time of shepherding our heart to read our Bibles, to pray, devotional time, that should then also feed lives of worship and holy lives that are committed unto the Lord? What do we do when we wake up and we just want to go back to sleep? (laughs) What do we do when... We can't wait to get to our coffee, and we really don't look forward to opening our Bibles. What do we do with our heart there to get to this point? How do we shepherd our hearts to shepherd our hearts well? That's really what we're going to be looking at. So first, first, cultivating a heart that trembles at God's word, that's humble and contrite before him. What what is going to be a helpful aid for us in this? Well, number one, set biblical expectations. So, that was introduction. <laughs> All right, now we're moving on. Uh, you should see the, the bold there, set biblical expectations. Set biblical expectations. Sometimes we enter into the Christian walk on such an emotional or even spiritual high. We have seasons of emotional bliss where it actually might be the impulse of us where we wake up and I just can't wait to see what's next and everything's fresh and exciting and new. Those are wonderful times. Those are gifts from the Lord for us for that season. But, but what do we do when that wears off or if that's not the season? 
Uh, maybe you've felt this before where it seems like everybody else doesn't have a problem reading their Bible. Everybody else loves to wake up early and get started. Nobody else seems to have any distractions. Their kids never wake up before them. Their dog never needs to be let out and tended to in the morning. It's just me that has these distractions. First of all, it's not just you. It's all of us. But it feels that way. What do we do in those moments where we have to actually fight for this time just to get it, much less have our heart be where it needs to be before the Lord? Sometimes we feel like if we don't have that emotional high, something is wrong, and then the goal becomes not faithfulness to the Lord, but somehow conjuring up or recreating that spiritual high or that emotional moment. Sometimes our feelings in that moment even dictates truth for us. We, we elevate our feelings as the truth to where I, I read my Bible today. I was only able to get 10 minutes and I prayed for five, but man, I was so distracted. I just don't feel like I got anything out of it. What do we do then? It's not helpful to elevate our emotions as dictators of truth. Our emotions are wonderful, beautiful gifts from the Lord. God created emotions. There is nothing wrong with being emotional. We are given emotions as gifts from God. What is wrong is letting our emotions lead us. God calls us to lead our emotions, to direct our emotions, namely by truth. So how do we do that? Well, first, set biblical expectations. This is so helpful for us when thinking about shepherding our hearts to humility and trembling before him and ultimately to love for him that treasures time with him. Set biblical expectations. What are some of those biblical expectations that we should set? Well, first, understand your mixed condition. Understand your mixed condition. And if you're fuzzy on what I mean by mixed condition, then go back at some point, pull out the blue new man worksheet and look at the cen center tile on the fold, trifold, and you'll see the mixed condition. What is the mixed condition? It's our Christian life now. We are no longer in an unmixed condition, which we were prior to salvation, where we're dead in our trespasses and sin, unable to please God, unable to glorify God, uh, scripture calls us slaves to sin at that time. That's an unmixed, sinful condition before the Lord. Now we're in a mixed condition. What does that mean? Positionally, we're right before God. Capacity-wise, we can obey God. We can glorify God in this life. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. We're called to obedience, and yet we still sin. We still live in this flesh that has a capacity to sin. It's mixed. We have the capacity and ability to glorify God, and we actually can go back and present our members to unrighteousness like we did prior to salvation perpetually. And so we're in this mixed condition. Why is that helpful to understand? Well, because what's true about us, even in the midst of our salvation? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 is still a reality where there's residual effects on our heart that it's deceitful and wicked above all else, desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why following your heart or trusting yourself approach to the Christian walk and practice, it's dangerous for us. 
This is the same reason that we saw last week from First Peter, the, the warning about the war that is being waged in your fleshly passions, your strong desires within you. And that's helpful. Because what, what do we do then when we wake up and we go, man, my heart's just not in it. And we feel surprised by that. Well, now we're caught off guard as opposed to, no, I, I woke up expecting this battle. This isn't catching me off guard. And God's given me tools and divine power to be able to fight it and address it. So understanding what's true about us in our salvation, our mixed condition, that the, the heart is deceitful, to remember that the flesh sets itself against the spirit, Galatians 5.17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. That's a reality. That's helpful just to know there's going to be a battle. As we've seen, I said a moment ago in First Peter 2, our flesh is waging war against us. And understand that this is a fight that starts in the mind. We don't start with evaluating and focusing on how we feel about something. We start and cling to what we know is true, and particularly what we know is true from Scripture. It's interesting that a key part of God's admonishment to Israel is putting before them the reality of who he is and his greatness. That's a helpful model for us. And so this is a fight that starts in the mind. Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not the things that are on the earth. Philippians 4, 8, right after addressing God's cure for anxiousness, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thankfulness in your hearts, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then right after that, he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It's a call. That's where we set our minds. That's where we set our attention. We take thoughts captive. We set them where they should go. We fix on what is true and right. I remember when I was a, a little kid, maybe six or seven years old, and I'd have to go to bed and it would be dark in my room and there would be times when I'd close my eyes and I'd I just have these like um, images wasn't like a vision but just images of scary monsters or gross things and I didn't like it and so what I would do I think this was because at that point in in our family I was the youngest and so and I'm old so we actually had to change the channel on the TV and that was my job <laughs> so you know, because I was the youngest, I had to go and next, next, through the 12 channels with the antenna that we got or whatever it was. Well, what I would do is I'd open my eyes and close my eyes like I was changing the channel in my mind and try to think on things that were pleasant, whether it was Jesus or Bible stories or, or whatever I could think of. Um, I just didn't want that image in my head. It was scary for me. So I, you know, and I don't know if that's helpful or just embarrassing for me. Probably <laughs> that's what I did. But it was, I, I look back and I go, wow, that was the kindness of the Lord that I 
that I had enough, enough wherewithal to go, this is not the right thought that I should entertain, and I'm intentionally making efforts to change what my mind is fixed on. That, that's, that's what we should aspire to. What's our natural inclination? Well, my mind was just racing. Maybe you can relate. End of the day, you lay down in bed, you're tired, you're ready for sleep, and you lay down, your eyes go wide open, and all you do is start replaying multiple conversations, different things that happened. Why did I say this? I should have said this in this situation. Why is this happening? What do I have to do tomorrow? And your mind just starts racing. You're like, ah, it took me forever to fall asleep last night. Why? My mind was just racing. Well, did you tell it to stop? (laughs) And I wish it were that easy, but at the same time, the Lord actually calls us not to be led by our minds, but to lead our minds, to direct our minds where they should go. Uh, We've talked about it in different times, and I think Tyler even said it. I wasn't at EQ Women last time, but he said it with the men. Fight what you feel with what you know to be true. That's the right thing to do when our feelings are wanting to drive us down paths that are not pleasing to the Lord. We, We combat that. And it's helpful, again, to know that this is just a battle we're gonna have. It, it helps us have a readiness for it. We're not caught off guard. If you have a, a work meeting and your expectation is that this person wants to meet with you because they can't wait to tell you how great you're doing, how eager they are to wanna buy your product, and that's how you walk into the, the meeting only to find that they're actually incredibly angry with the service they've, re- they've received and they wanted to face-to-face tell you how lacking your product was, how overpriced it is, and what a horrible job you've done in communicating things to them, that, that's going to be so unsettling to your heart. That was not what I was expecting. And yet if you know, oh man, this, this customer, this client is, is really upset. I got I to gotta come prepared. I got to come ready. I got to be in the right disposition to be able to not respond in kind, to have gentle answers that might turn away their wrath or whatnot. It's helpful. So it is with shepherding our hearts. If we wake up and just think every morning is just going to be a a wonderful bliss of worshipful time with the Lord and it's just going to flow naturally from me, that's not a helpful expectation in light of what we know to be true about our own hearts. In the battle of the spiritual life, our flesh is setting itself against us. And it can be beautiful, and it can be worshipful, but it doesn't come like that just automatically every day on its own. It takes heart shepherding. And what we find is simply being in the fight to love God, that is one of the most beautiful things that we can experience in this life. There will be much, much time where we don't have to fight this battle against our flesh in eternity. When you see him, he'll, you'll be like him. We won't have this body of flesh that's sinful. We'll be given new bodies perfectly uh, created to worship and enjoy God for eternity. We'll, at that point, we won't be in a mixed condition anymore. We'll be unmixed, but not unmixed in sin. We'll be unmixed in glory. That's what Paul talks about, from lesser glory to greater glory. We'll look at that verse in just a few moments. That day's not yet. And so we need to have right expectations. Understand your mixed condition. Also, set biblical expectations that God will produce growth in the believer. We can actually have a confidence that God will produce this growth. That is so comforting because sometimes it just doesn't feel like a fight we can win. 
I'm just in a grumpy mood. I'm going to be in a grumpy mood. I don't want to draw near to God's word. I don't want to submit to him. And that's just where I'm at. The reality is, is that God actually gives us his power to be able to walk in obedience to him. Before we do that, I missed practical sanctification is a process on your outline. So understand your mixed condition. Heart is deceitful. The flesh sets itself against the spirit. This is a fight that starts in a mind also, which we've touched on it, but practical sanctification is a process. Second Corinthians 318. That's the verse that I referenced. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord to spirit. What is Paul saying there? Upon salvation, you have Christ's righteousness. You die at any moment. You are not condemnable for any one of your sins. God has paid for them all through the blood of Christ. Positionally, you are sanctified, set apart for him. And yet in practice, we are still seeking to grow from glory that we receive upon salvation to glory which is what we are getting closer to a growth in glory essentially a a growth in holiness that's transpiring in our christian walk that's a helpful expectation to have as well because what you are today is not what you once were and it's not what you one day will be we're all in process here and so don't lose heart if your spiritual discipline and your spiritual life isn't all that you desire it to be today, keep pressing forward, understanding this is a process. It's an expression of arrogance to think, well, I'm never going to sin again because I love Jesus. That, that, that's actually arrogant. Sanctification in God's wisdom is a process for us in this life. So we actually have to trust the Lord in the process. Not that we're ever content or lackadaisical about our own sin, but it shouldn't catch us off guard that it actually is a process of growing. I remember when, um, when I first started leading music at Grace Bible Church, I think I was 19, almost 20, and every week our pastor, at one of the pastors at the time would sit with me, Scott Maxwell, and he was so gracious. I had no clue what I was doing. I was young. I truly wanted to serve the Lord and serve the church well, but there was so much pride and just, I just didn't know what I was doing. And I wanted to serve the church well. Every week we would kind of recap, how did it go this last week? And, you know, I wouldn't have anything written down and he'd have a couple pages of notes written down and he'd be like, what have you got? And I'm like, uh, well, this transition was rough and, you know, we got some sound issues here. And he's like, yeah, I had those too. And here's a couple more things. And he's like, but they're all fixable. We can work on this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, I wanted to serve the church so well and I couldn't do it. Like every week there were multiple things I needed to do better. And, I, and I, I just remember thinking in my heart, Josh, you are so prideful to think that you could just step into this and not need instruction, not need to grow. That is so arrogant. It, it's a good desire to not want to be a distraction, um, but it's, it's a prideful expectation to think that you would just be able to be awesome at this from the get-go. You can ask Julie about the first week. It was like six months in when I sat down with Scott, and uh, I've like got my notepad out now. Like, okay, what have you got for me? How do you think it went? He's like, oh, it's a really good week. Good job. Hey, did you know this? And, I'm like, and he just starts talking about something else. And I'm like, 
you don't have anything for me to change? And I went, I went home to Julie. I'm like, I didn't mess anything up this week. <laughs> the next week was a train wreck. <laughs> it was great. The Lord humbled me. It was good. Knows, he knows the humbling I need. That's good. Okay. All right. Practical sanctification is a process. Now, God will produce the growth in the believer. This is a fight that we can win. That's a, that's a helpful expectation. Don't grow weary. It is going to be a battle, but there's actually provisions to win the battle. How great is that? God will produce the growth in the believer. It's a fight we can win. Second Peter 1.3, we've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's 2 Peter 1.3. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has seized you, but what is common to man. And with the temptation, God is faithful. And there's a way of escape. It's a fight we can win. We can't win it in our own strength, in our own power, but we have divine power from the Lord. So God will produce the growth. This is a fight you can win, and yet God's design is that you have to be willing to fight. You have to be willing to fight. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, where's the command here? Right here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work at it. Not because we're working for it. Right? Everything, all, 100% about our salvation is rooted and founded in Jesus Christ. We are not getting to work for our salvation. It is a free gift by grace alone, through faith alone. But as God gifts us that beautiful, wonderful salvation, forgiveness of sins, his love, love for him, reconciliation to him, when that is gifted to us, we are with that gift called to steward it, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, of the calling that you've been given. And that comes with work, working it out, living it out, live out your salvation, get to work at living in accordance with the salvation that you've given. This is where we recognize that Jesus is our Savior, but he's also our Lord. And a gospel that says he can only be your Savior and he doesn't have to be your Lord is a false gospel. It's a package deal. He is your Lord and Savior. He must be both. Your salvation comes to you because he is your Savior, and it's lived out with him as your Lord. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus says. And this call to work out your salvation comes with this promise, verse 13 of Philippians 2. For it is God who is at work in you. And I just love how God has designed this in his infinite wisdom so beautifully that we have a, a personal obligation and responsibility to vigorously pursue him in faithful living, and we can have a confidence to accomplish it because it's not us working in us, it's God, his spirit, working in us. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, it's a fight you can win, but you have to be willing to fight. Page two. What are some helpful aids for us as we seek to shepherd our hearts, to shepherd our hearts, to love the Lord? Well, cultivate a right view of God, a big view of God. 
Uh, that's what God does for his people in Isaiah 66. Expose your heart to truth about God, particularly from his word, and agree with him at the heart level. And so listen, if you're seeking to grow in enjoyment in your time in the word, take out a notebook as you read, and whatever you're reading, you don't have to go, you know, search search it out. I, I've just got to, you know, guess where I might find something. Just whatever you're reading in God's word, just make notes. What does this reveal about God? What does this passage have to say about God? What does it reveal about God? And then write it out. Expose your truth to, expose your heart to truth about God. Also, cultivate a right or a smaller, small view of self. Our problem is not that we think too little about ourselves. It's not like, man, I just need to focus on me. My problem in my spiritual walk is that I have not focused enough on me. That is very worldly lingo, and it's not biblical lingo. We need to focus on God, and we need to have a right, God-centered, truth-saturated view of self. And God's word actually calls us to think less about self. It's interesting, because we're called to think or consider ourselves as far as value or priority less, and yet his instruction for holiness is directed towards us not changing others, but changing us. So we're called to put on virtues, to live holy lives, and part of that is not being so fixated on how everything impacts us, but rather how we can make an impact for the Lord. So cultivate, cultivate a right or big view of God, cultivate a right or smaller, small view of self, and then fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn to Hebrews 12. I want you to see this one with me. Hebrews chapter 12. In chapter 11, the author of Hebrews has put forth this explanation of faith. What is faith? And then he demonstrates faith through all these wonderful examples of men and women who have walked before us, lived out their love for God faithfully, lives of faithfulness to God in the midst of just horrific trials and persecutions and hardships. And then in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews starts in verse 1, says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, what's the cloud of witnesses surrounding us? These men and women who lived lives full of faith before the Lord in the midst of tremendous hardship and trials and persecutions. Since we have that, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Listen, if you're fighting for time with the Lord and you want it to be worshipful and maybe there's sin in your life that you're, you're trying to address and you just feel, feel faint-hearted in the season the Lord has you in, fix your eyes on Jesus. Intentionally, deliberately renew your mind with who Christ is. How do we do that? Read your Bible. 
stand on the shoulders of men and women who have walked before us that have read their Bibles and written wonderful books. Renew your mind with truth. And also, take sin and hindrances seriously. Don't let your spiritual appetite for Christ be dulled because you're unwilling to let go of sins in your life. Sin actually matters. And not only sin, but just encumbrances. Anything that would slow down or distract our, our running for Christ. It's just foolish to have these pockets or areas in our life where we, where we think, yeah, I'm not all that I should be in this way, but it's okay. It's kind of just re uh, relegated to this area of my life. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't impact anybody. I I'm kind of working on it. I'll get to it. We just should never have that attitude with sin. We should have the attitude where we're looking to cast aside everything that slows us down in our pursuit of Jesus. And then we fix our eyes on Jesus. So if you want to cultivate a heart that is captivated by God, that loves God, that is eager to spend time with the Lord, fix your eyes on Christ. And then lastly, Embrace biblical practices. Be faithful even when you feel faithless. Do, do what you know is right and trust the Lord with what he will produce through it. Uh, what are some of the biblical practices that we're called to? Well, again, take sin seriously. Confess your sin to the Lord. Repent of it. Open up 2 Corinthians 7 and work through that verses 12 through 14. And what God calls us to godly sorrow, what does it produce? And intentionally, deliberately, here's how I want to rid myself of this sin. I, I, I don't only feel bad about my sin, but I actually, I feel bad unto life change. Put off sin. Confess it. Confess to one another. Seek prayer, encouragement. And then, okay, typos are always entertaining, this one's especially entertaining. It's not supposed to be reflect self-dependence. Any guesses on what it's supposed to be? What's that? Reject. <laughs> yeah, deflect would be a good, good one, but it's supposed to be reject. That's 100% my fault. Apologize for that. But when I first saw it, I, kinda, I did kind of chuckle. That's horrible counsel. <laughs> reflect self-dependence. No, reject it. Reject self-dependence. Don't think you can do this on your own. That's not God's design. God's design is not a, a rogue Christian life. Uh, a solo, solo journey. It's just me and the Lord. That's not what God saved us for. We're a people. We're to be connected with one another. And this is, this is one of those things that can become so emotional, so challenging. And, and I've seen the damage it can it can have on the Christian life. God's wisdom in designing the Christian life to be connected with other believers does not mean it's an easy path. It, it just doesn't. And sometimes that can be our expectations. I'm going to be part of the church, but when somebody sin against, sins against me or I get hurt, something doesn't go against plan, I'm pulling the plug because it's just not worth it I'm just going to pursue Jesus on my own. That is never, never, never how the Christian life is portrayed in Scripture. It's actually assumed 
you're part of the church, you're part of an assembly of believers, and it's expected that you will sin against one another. Why do I say this? Because there's specific instruction to forgive. (laughs) Why would we need to forgive if the expectation isn't that we would actually sin against one another? Again, that's not permission to just go deliberately sin. We should never want to do that. But let's be real. We know ourselves. People are going to sin against us. We're going to sin against one another. We've already experienced that. And we're called to forgive one another. Whoever has an offense, even if just something rubs you the wrong way, to not allow any root of bitterness in our hearts. So this is helpful. Reject self-dependence. God's design is for believers to be connected to one another for a multitude of reasons. We're being built up together as a holy temple, as Peter has said. And so we look to God, we depend upon him, we recognize our need for him, and his grace to us is his church. And this is one of the things that in in counseling, in discipling, I know I've experienced multiple times. Tom and I have sat with people and experienced it. He's expressed the same thing. Where somebody desires to grow, they express a desire to grow. They, de- they express a desire to put off sins. And so we'll talk through, okay, wh- what are the means of grace that the Lord has given you to be able to fight this? Well, his word, fellowship, other believers. Okay, so what are what are the triggers? What are the things that kind of, send you down this path that you don't want to go anymore. Well, this, this, and this. Okay, when you start to experience those, embrace God's graces. Call me. Okay, I'm going to do that. Then three weeks go by, and we get a call, and the person has been two and a half weeks down this dark path. We go, well, why didn't you call? I thought I had it, I thought I had it under control, or I didn't want to, or I was embarrassed, or I didn't think about it, whatever. A rejection of God's graces because it's self-dependence, self-reliance, and we need to reject that. We need to embrace the means of grace that the Lord has given us, his word, prayer, the body of Christ, other believers. There's just no battle for holiness that we have to fight alone. That's a comfort. Prayer, if you don't feel the way that you ought about your time with the Lord, and you want, man, I I don't, I just, I don't feel humble and contrite before him. I'm not broken over my sin like I should be. I I don't want to read my Bible. I want to do these other things. Why? Why can't I change? Well, ask him. Pray. Make intentional time to pray. Lord, today, I just want to go back to bed, but would you help me to be faithful before you and to trust you Help me to value you more than sleep, more than comfort. Pray. And then do what's right. We've talked about this before, the the tendency. I don't want to bring my wicked legalistic heart to God's word, and so I'm going to not read my Bible until my heart's in the right place. And all of a sudden you just, with a really sweet desire to not sin against God, rejected his means of grace that would actually help bring your heart to the right place. Just do it. (laughs) And trust the Lord that he'll work through his word and his spirit. And actually that self-denial, I don't want to read God's word. I don't want to be legalistic. Uh, I don't want to sin against the Lord. 
but I know the right thing to do is to humble myself before him. So I'm just going to do it and trust him. That actually is worship. It's self-denial. That's God's spirit working in you that you would do that. What would be more concerning is, I don't want to read my Bible, but I'm going to do it so that God accepts me and I'm a good enough Christian. Yeah, don't do that. But the cure for that is not not reading your Bible. It's don't think that way. Wow, that was sinful thinking. I don't want to read my Bible, but I'm going to do it because I, I want to love Jesus and I want to draw near to him and I trust him to use his word in my life. Meditation, uh, not probably how we think about meditation uh, portrayed in, in secularism, but as scripture would say it from Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a, a tree planted by streams of water and will b- bear much fruit in season and out of season. That's what we're called to, meditation on God's word day and night. If you want to cultivate a, a humility, a contriteness of spirit, worshipful time with Christ, don't just read your Bible and move on. Think on it. Pray about it. Write down notes on your notes app in your phone of something that just caught your attention that morning. And then periodically throughout the day, remind yourself, be thinking about it. Let God's word really saturate in your mind. Take intentional efforts to do that. And listen, this is, this is hard. This is a discipline. Okay, I am the, my mom, I was, I was homeschooled and she used to just, I, I drove her crazy. Reading was not my strong suit. And whenever I would read, my tendency would be, I could, I could read the words on the page and then all of a sudden my mind would be completely somewhere else and I just read like six pages. Like I actually read it, but I had no recollection of what I just read. And so my attention was just not there. It was everywhere. So she'd walk in and I'd be doing school and I'd be like laying on the couch upside down reading. I just couldn't, I just wasn't very self-controlled. I still read in funny positions, but I don't know. It's how, it's how I do it. But I have to focus. You have to focus. Okay. And then, I, oh, oh, okay. Well, got to start over. I don't remember a thing I just read. But set your mind to it. Set your mind to those things. Don't just go through the motions. These are a means to the end. What's the end? Glorifying God. Worship of him. Love for him. So embrace the means and trust him with the end. We've talked about this frequently in our home, the tendency to allow our thoughts to be elevated, our assessment to be elevated, as opposed to simply trusting the Lord. You know, that the attitude, oh, I read my Bible, I did this, I'm just not getting a lot out of it. That's, that's actually a really arrogant statement. As if we could assess what God is going to do with his word in our lives. Julie and I marveled at how the Lord sustained us in the trial of Caleb's passing that you guys know about. Um, we didn't, we weren't prepared for that in the sense of uh, Caleb passed away and we just knew God's truth to go to on our own. 20 years of being shepherded faithfully with God's word, faithful preaching through scripture, things like Build in Wellspring, small group <laughs> interaction, 
devotions, reading our Bible over and over and over again, it was a buoy for our soul. It was a buoy for our sanity <laughs> when we didn't have explanations of how something like, you know, Caleb dying could be good, could be okay before the Lord, how he could use it for his purposes. And yet what we knew to be true about God came forth in that moment. That wasn't a testimony to us. Days when we didn't feel like reading our Bible, and we did, came to full fruition and still bear fruit in our lives today because of that. That's the power of God's word. Uh, don't, don't think so little of God's word that our emotions somehow tell us if it was fruitful. It's God's word. Of course it's going to be fruitful. We should have a confidence of that. And so trust God. Trust God that he'll do his work in you as you embrace his graces. And again, those expectations are helpful because this isn't a go home once and now your heart problem is solved. <laughs> this is a life of progressive sanctification, of pursuing the Lord, trusting him. And listen, your, your faithfulness in the midst of your emotions are going to be a far greater indicator of what you think about time with the Lord than your emotions. Doing it when you don't feel like you want to, trusting the Lord when you don't feel like you got something out of it, that is worship. Why? Because you've denied your own impulses, your own thoughts, you've humbled yourself before the Lord, you're not giving in to your own selfishness of how you think God must make you feel, and you're trembling before him, you're doing what's right, even though you don't, because you love him. That's what we should aim at by God's grace we can achieve it all right any questions comments save them all for Anne clarifications okay I will uh, I will pray Heavenly Father, thank you for thank you for your goodness, for your character, for your love, for your patience with us. Thank you that you have given us everything that we need to be able to live this life in a way that's pleasing to you. I thank you that you are so patient when we don't embrace all of those provisions like we ought. Lord, help us to grow in our love. Lord, help us to treasure you as our great God. We pray that you would receive all the glory from these things. In Christ's name, 